I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 3, we're going to be looking at verses 14 through 16 this morning. If you haven't brought a Bible with you, our passage is found on page 992 in your pew Bibles, 992 in your pew Bibles. I have been doing a sermon series through this uh, Advent uh, season on what I've called the Songs of Christ. They have been focused on passages uh, that uh, many biblical scholars believe to have been uh, parts of confessions or creeds or songs uh, about Christ. And fairly clearly, I think we, we come to one today, uh, part of a creed or confession. Uh, in fact, we're even going to see a clear indication of that in our passage uh, this morning. So let's look at this uh, passage together, 1 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. The Apostle Paul writes to Timothy, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Amen. This ends the reading of God's holy word. May he write its truth on all of our hearts this morning. Let's go to God in prayer. Our God, how we thank you. For the Lord Jesus Christ, who indeed was manifested in the flesh. And so, O God, may Christ be lifted up in our midst this day. Write your word on our hearts. May we grow in our knowledge and in our love of Christ through the reading and the preaching of the word this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I love reading mystery Novels. Many of you perhaps share that passion. Also, like mystery shows, Christy and I used to very faithfully watch the show Murder She Wrote many years ago. You perhaps remember that show. I have used this name before. One of my seminary professors, Dr. Roger Nicole at Gordon-Conwell Seminary up in Massachusetts. He had six, over 6,000 mystery novels that were in shelves in his attic uh, up above his, uh, his house in his home. And he used to say, actually, that being a good interpreter of the Bible 
was like being a good detective. Uh, you pull together clues, words, and phrases, and basically see how things fit together, and that's how you interpret uh, scripture. I'm not sure if reading mystery novels has helped me to be a good interpreter of scripture, but anyhow, I, I enjoy them and, uh, and still, still read them. In our passage this morning, we read in verse 16, great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. The mystery of godliness. Now in the Bible, the word mystery doesn't mean something that you're trying to figure out the whodunit of the Bible. In the Bible, it means something previously hidden, but now revealed. Previously hidden, but has been revealed. And the mystery in our passage is, 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 comes to us basically in the form of a creed or a song about the Lord Jesus Christ. And there is basic agreement among uh, New Testament scholars that this is or is part of an early Christian creed or song or confession. We see this uh, in part by this phrase in verse 16, great we confess is the mystery of godliness. It seems to have been a well-known um, statement about the Lord Jesus Christ in the early church. It also has, especially in the Greek, a rhythmic structure. I don't want to bore you with this by uh, going through this rhythmic structure, but very quickly, if you have an interest in it, uh, each line basically has the same structure. It begins with verbs that have the same ending, theta, eta in the Greek. Uh, it is followed by the same preposition in every phrase but one. Um, that's, it gets across the idea in a different way. We won't get into that. Uh, it ends with a noun in the same case in the Greek. And each line is roughly the same length. I'd read the Greek to you, but you'd say to me, it's all Greek to me. So I won't bother doing that. Most important is the content. So let's look at the content. There are different ways, I can say this, of structuring the whole. And it really depends on how you understand each line. Um, for instance, some scholars see a chiastic structure, uh, an X structure, uh, as we saw last week in Hebrews chapter 1. Uh, but I think it's best to understand this, to see that there are three contrasting pairs. Six lines, three contrasting pairs. Verses one and two, uh, lines 1 and 2, 3 and 4, 5 and 6. Three contrasting pairs. So let's look at these lines and work our way through this 
this song, if you will, about Jesus Christ. First of all, he was manifested in the flesh. Of course, what is this a reference to? It's a reference to his incarnation. Manifested. He came, he was revealed in the flesh. But what does this language assume? If he's manifested in the flesh, it assumes, it presumes his preexistence, his deity. Right off the bat, God became man. So here this this creed, this song about Christ begins with Christmas, the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And of course, in, in any sense of the word, this is truly a mystery. It's a mystery. The virgin birth by the Holy Spirit. God taking human nature. Even in our sense of the word, this is truly a mystery. But it is also a mystery in the biblical sense of the word, previously hidden but now revealed. It was foretold in the reading we read last week from Isaiah Chapter 7, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Manifested in the flesh, God becoming man through a virgin. It's fulfillment of a biblical prophecy that was given to Isaiah the prophet 700 years before Christ came. And it is crucial. It is crucial to salvation that Christ is God himself. That God became man. That God the Son became man. Why is that? Because we need God to save us. We need God to save us. If we say we don't need God to save us, we are saying that we can save ourselves. And we know that that is patently false, that we can save ourselves. We cannot save ourselves. We need God to save us. Christ, eternal God, became man. There are numerous implications of this, and we certainly don't have time to explore all. Uh, We've got five other statements to get through this morning. But one key statement comes in Hebrews chapter 2. Where the writer to the Hebrews says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that is flesh and blood, that through death he might destroy the one 
who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. To deliver from the fear of death those who were subject to lifelong slavery. Death is coming for all. Most fear death, most people. And yet, as the Christmas hymn puts it, now you need not fear the grave. Jesus Christ has come to save. I love the story of the great English pastor, preacher. You hear me tell stories and anecdotes about him all the time, but the great English pastor, preacher, Charles Simeon, as he lay dying in Cambridge, England in October of 1836, a friend was sitting at his bed and he asked Simeon what he was thinking of just then. And Simeon answered, I don't think now I'm enjoying on his deathbed. I don't think now. I'm enjoying. He knew Christ. He had no fear of death. Second phrase, vindicated by the Spirit. Vindicated by the Spirit. This is a reference, I believe, to Christ's resurrection. So what we have here is his incarnation And then the vindication is resurrection, bookending Christ's earthly ministry in these first two phrases. By the Spirit, we we read that the Spirit elsewhere, that the Spirit was active in the resurrection of Christ. Romans 1.4, the Apostle Paul writes, He was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead, the spirit active in raising Christ from the dead. Of course, this also assumes, as did the first line, assumes something. And what is that? Is death on the cross. We read many times that the reason Christ came to earth was to do what? To, to save sinners. Ultimately, by taking God's wrath on himself on the cross, Christ came to die, to die for all of the sins of all of his people. The Apostle John puts it, God loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation of for our sins. What does that word propitiation mean? It means it's, it, it's, it's, he came to, to turn aside God's wrath by taking God's wrath on himself. Because we deserve God's wrath for our sins. As the Apostle Paul says elsewhere, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by God's grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward 
as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Believing, trusting in Christ alone. We can't earn it. We don't deserve it. We simply receive it by faith, trusting in Christ and in Christ alone, who took God's wrath for sin on himself to save sinners. Put to death as an evildoer on a cross, reserved for the worst of sinners, though he committed no sin. And yet, as Matthew Henry, the great commentator, puts it, his sacrifice was accepted because we see it, that God raised him from the dead, vindicated him as the Son of God or God the Son. So we move and we'll pick up the pace here. We move from flesh and spirit to cosmic, earthly, contrasting pair. Next we see in the third line, seen by angels. Seen by angels. There were angels present at his birth. Hark, the herald, angels sing. We have, we have sung. Angels we have heard on high. We read, we sing of angels in many of our Christmas hymns. We see angels who minister to him in the garden before his arrest and before his cross. We see angels present at his resurrection or at his tomb. We see angels present after his ascension. The emphasis here is on the the cosmic nature of Christ's work. We also read elsewhere in scripture that Christ reigns over the principalities and powers which seem to refer to the the cosmic forces of of darkness. Paul writes in Colossians chapter 2, 15, this is the the New, New King James Version, having disarmed the principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them. These are the powers of, of darkness that Christ triumphed over on the cross. As Jesus would say at his arrest, this is your hour and the power of darkness. But it was actually that arrest that led to his cross and resurrection that actually led to triumph over the darkness. And he reigns now so that the gospel can and will go forward, which we see in line four, proclaimed among the nations or proclaimed among the Gentiles, we could translate, proclaimed among the Gentiles. This also is a mystery or was a mystery, at least to the Jews in the first century. The, the, the gospel was supposed to be for the Jews. The God of the Bible was a Jewish God. Jesus was 
a Jew, the Jewish Messiah. But it's proclaimed among the nations, the Gentiles. One of the great early battles in the scripture, the the first great, we could call it the Battle of the Titans in the early church, took place between the apostles Peter and Paul. Peter drew back from eating with the Gentiles, basically saying they needed to become Jews for full fellowship with believers. But in Christ, as Paul puts elsewhere, the dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile believers has been torn down. All are one in the Lord Jesus Christ. Proclaim to the nations, the Gentiles. But this is also not only oneness in Christ, but this is also a missions statement here, this fourth statement. Proclaimed among the nations. It's significant that this early creed contains a statement regarding the proclamation of the gospel. The proclamation of Christ. Isn't that interesting? We don't have in the creeds we say anything about proclaiming Christ. This one did. Jesus' last words to his disciples were what? Go into all the world and make disciples. It's the church's call. It is our mission. Not to be inward focused, but outward focused. Bishop Leslie Newbigin once wrote this, The church is the pilgrim people of God. It is on the move, hastening to the ends of the earth to beseech all people to be reconciled to God and hastening to the end of time to meet its Lord who will gather all into one. It cannot, the church cannot be understood rightly except in a perspective that is at once missionary and eschatological. Hastening to the end of the world, hastening to the end of time. Missionary and eschatological. That brings us to the final two contrasts believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Believed on in the world, the good news is that the gospel preaching is not in vain. It's believed. People trust as God has promised, as Christ has promised. Sometimes there is hard ground. It's not always believed. Many of the greatest missionaries that the world has seen have not always had success, or at least not always had immediate success. William Carey labored in India for seven years before his first convert, before he saw his first convert. Seven years. Adoniram Judson, 
labored in Burma, now Myanmar, for six years before his first convert. He ultimately was there for 38 years. And after his death, several years after his death, there was a a government survey done, and there were 210,000 converts, believers in Christ, among the uh, Burmans. God is faithful, but God uses human instruments to do this work. There's a story that's been told by Michael Card. It was about a Maasai warrior named Joseph who was at a conference, invited to a, a conference in Amsterdam, a conference on evangelism. He was a, a Maasai warrior. And as Michael Card tells the, the story, he says this, One day Joseph, who was walking along one of these hot, dirty African roads, met someone who shared the gospel of Jesus Christ with him. Then and there he accepted Jesus as his Lord and Savior. The power of the Spirit began transforming his life. He was filled with such excitement and joy that the first thing he wanted to do was return to his own village and share the same good news with the members of his local tribe. Joseph began going from door to door, telling everyone he met about the cross of Jesus and the salvation it offered, expecting to see their faces light up the way his had. To his amazement, the villagers not only didn't care, they became violent. The men of the village seized him and held him to the ground while the women beat him with strands of barbed wire. He was dragged from the village and left to die alone in the bush. Joseph somehow managed to crawl to a water hole and there, after days of passing in and out of consciousness, found the strength to get up. He wondered about the hostile reception he had received from the people he had known all his life. He decided he must have left something out or told the story of Jesus incorrectly. After rehearsing the message he had first heard, he decided to go back and share his faith once more. Joseph limped into the circle of huts and began to proclaim Jesus. He died for you so that you might find forgiveness and come to know the living God, he pleaded. Again, he was grabbed by the men of the village and held while the women beat him, reopening the wounds that had just begun to heal. Once more, they dragged him unconscious from the village and left him to die. To have survived the first beating was truly remarkable. To live through the second was a miracle. Again, days later, Joseph awoke in the wilderness, bruised, scarred, and determined to go back. He returned to the small village, and this time they attacked him before he had a chance to open his mouth. As they flogged him for the third time, and probably the last time, he again spoke to them of Jesus Christ the Lord. Before he passed out, the last thing he saw was that the women who were beating him began to weep. This time he awoke in his own bed. The ones who had so severely beaten him were now trying to save his life and nurse him back to health. The entire village had come to Christ.
an amazing story, proclaiming the gospel and God working through a faithful servant. Finally, sixth, taken up in glory, where Christ is enthroned in the place of power and authority and rules the nations. What does that mean? It means that the gospel can be effective. The church can carry out its work. It also means for us that Christ is to be supreme and rule in our lives. And one day he will come again. Why is it called the mystery here, however, of godliness as we conclude? Well, verse 15 says, I'm writing these things so that you know how to behave in the household of God, the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. What we believe affects how we live. Theology is for life. In the midst of instructions for how we we live together in the body of Christ is where Paul puts this confession. Because that's what First Timothy really is all about. If you go back, if you go forward, Paul is basically giving instructions to Timothy for how the church is to, to live together. Sometimes with some rebuke, sometimes with encouragement. Paul puts this right smack dab in the middle. And really at the end of the day, it means following Christ's example of humble, selfless sacrifice. As the Christmas hymn puts it, thou who was rich beyond all splendor, one of the verses goes this way, thou who art God beyond all praising, all for love's sake becamest man, stooping so low, but sinners raising, heavenward by thine eternal plan. Thou who art God beyond all praising, all for love's sake, becamest man. May God and his Holy Spirit make us more like our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our God, how we thank you that indeed our Lord Jesus stooped so low, even to death on a cross, to raise us up. So, O God, we pray that you would enable us uh, to follow Christ, to love Christ, to serve Christ faithfully. Uh, Be with us, we pray, by your power, by your Holy Spirit, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.